It is a pleasure to be here with all of you. I'm excited to see the facilities that you all have, and I'm excited for the potential of the great work that this congregation can do in the Cookville area. Uh, you all have been and will continue to be in my prayers. As Don said, I've, he and I have known each other, and uh, we've been giving each other grief for about maybe 15 years now. Uh, there was a time a few years back when, uh, uh, when I was living in Georgia, a, uh, my, uh, my wife and I, we had a house fire, and uh, we had to gut the entire house, and Don was, uh, had had, was asking me to speak at a lectureship that he was directing at the time, and a few days after the fire, um, we were emailing each other about the lectureship, and, uh, and I put as a PS, I said, oh, by the way, uh, just so you know, and I told him about the fire and I asked for his prayers. And he said, he replied, he said, well, I can always change your topic to the fires of hell. And then he wrote, too soon, dot, dot, dot. So uh, we, I have a lot of respect for him and, and I consider him uh, in very, very high regard. So... Talking about when heroes falter with uh, Noah and the topic of drunkenness, I'm going to be talking in a way I normally do not do tonight. Um, I normally don't just talk, don't really say everything that's on the screen, but I'm going to tonight because this is a topic that is deep. There's a lot of misunderstanding about the topic of uh, the Bible and social drinking. And so everything that I'm saying is going to be on the screen for those of you who are taking notes. Uh, Don has, um, I emailed him the PowerPoint and uh, the brother back there also has a copy of it. If you would like to, um, to have a copy of the PowerPoint to study more on your own, then please uh, see them. Also, I cannot recommend this book more. This is called The Bible and Social Drinking. It's by, by a brother named W.D. Jeffcoat. Uh, he wrote this as a thesis uh, to examine everything that the Bible says about uh, wine and alcohol. It goes into the most detail that I've ever seen on this subject, and you can find it at any Brotherhood bookstore. I highly recommend uh, that you get it. So, in talking about our, our topic tonight, uh, let's go ahead and start with Genesis chapter 9, verses 20 through 23. This is after the flood. And uh, we read that Noah, Moses said, he began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and laid uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. So in taking away from this topic, um, from this passage, we see that Noah did commit sin. And this was after the flood, but it does show you that Noah was not a perfect man. He was above reproach, blameless in, si in the sight of the Lord, but that did not mean that he was incapable of sinning. Now his sins and this occasion were drunkenness and the immodesty that came from being drunk. 
His son, Ham, also committed sin. Uh, you could say that it was a basic violation of the golden rule, if not anything else. He had a chance to do right by his father, cover up his father's nakedness. He did not do it. He, he could have uh, told his brothers in a more respectful way, but the implication that I get from the text was that he was telling his brothers about it in more of a gossiping type of way. Um, so the result of this was that Noah cursed Ham's son, Canaan. Now the reason why Noah did this is not stated in the text, so all we are left with is speculation. Now there are some commentators that would say that uh, perhaps Ham was Noah's youngest son, and so Canaan would be Ham's youngest son, so Noah cursed Canaan. Well, we don't, that might be, but we don't know for sure. Uh, the Talmud puts forth the possibility that Canaan was somehow involved in what Ham did to his father. And again, that might be true, but the biblical text does not state that. What we do, what we can say, see is that um, when we look at Noah's curse, we see that his curse to Canaan, and really this would be an extension to the descendants of Canaan, that the curse would be that Canaan and his descendants would be a servant of ser servants to Shem and Japheth's descendants. Now this could have been a possible prophecy because Shem's descendants would include Abraham and by extension Abraham's descendants, the Israelites. And the Israelites, as you know, hundreds of years later, would conquer the land of Canaan, where, the, where Canaan's descendants lived. So this could be an allusion to that. Another possible prophecy, uh, Japheth's descendants, if you examine Genesis chapter 10, they included the Gentile nations that centuries later would make up the Roman Empire, and the Roman Empire would enslave numerous tribes from Africa and Asia, and that's where Canaan's descendants, uh, many of them, would live. So that's another possible prophecy here. Um, we also see that Noah said that Japheth would dwell in the tents of Shem. I have read some commentators that say that this could be, this could have a spiritual application pointing to the New Testament when the Jews who were Shem's descendants would join with the Gentiles who would be Japheth's descendants in the Lord's church and, and like what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 13 through 14 that now in Christ Jesus you the Gentiles who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ that Christ himself is our peace who has made us both Jew and Gentile one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Uh, there are some that see a spiritual application from what Noah said here. Um, this is a question that I wanted to cover really quick because um, especially in uh, the South before the Civil War when slavery was very much involved in the South, one of the biblical justifications that slave owners made, they would look at Noah's curse of Canaan, they would see that Canaan's descendants would settle in Africa, and they would say, you see, this is just the biblical pattern that if, you, that if you are from Africa, that it is just was foretold in prophecy that you would be a, a slave. And so the question that we have here is, was Noah condemning Ham and Canaan's descendants the, who generally settled in Africa and also in Asia, that they would always be the slaves of Shem's descendants, the Jews, and Japheth's descendants, which would be the Europeans and eventually 
the Americans as well? And the answer to that question is no, because if you were to go to Genesis chapter 10, verse 6, the sons of Ham were not only Canaan, but also Egypt as well. And Egypt, just 400 years later, would enslave Shem's descendants, the Israelites, uh, very quickly after that. But then another reason why this isn't the case is because if you are a student of history, like, like I am, I love to study history, history shows that basically the descendants of all three of, jo of Noah's sons would enslave each other at different times, repeatedly, and that would e even be the case in some places today. So we should not look at Noah's curse here as a biblical justification for the enslavement of those from Africa as was commonly interpreted just a couple of hundred years ago. So I wanted to talk about Noah and Noah's episode of drunkenness, but I want to now get to the main topic of tonight, which is the topic of drunkenness and drinking. There is significant lack of knowledge in the Lord's church today about what scripture teaches and about what history shows about the topic of drinking and drunkenness. And so it's good that we have an in-depth study. It's good I'm talking about it tonight. It's good that in addition to me talking about it, Don is doing a series on it as well because my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Hosea chapter four, verse six. One of the big things about biblical Christianity, being a faithful Christian, is growing in the knowledge of God's word. And so my goal for tonight is basically to present the biblical teaching on this topic in its entirety, because Psalm 119, verse 160 says, the entirety of your word is truth. I want to do it in love. I do not want to do it in a sarcastic or a demeaning way. I recognize that this is a sensitive topic. I recognize that it is a controversial topic. And I'm told to speak the truth in love, Ephesians 4, verse 15, 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26, says that the Lord's servant, the Lord's minister, must speak uh, the truth, that he must do so in a, in a non-argumentative way, he must do so in a kind way, and that is my goal for tonight. And I want, I, my, my goal for you is that you will leave here tonight encouraged to have God's revealed will on this topic as your highest priority, because that's what Christianity is all about. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord, Colossians 3 verse 17. There's division in the Lord's church about drunkenness, but one thing that everyone will agree on that, that I've observed is that all will agree that drunkenness is a sin. It's listed as a work of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. The difference of opinion is at what point is one drunk scripturally? When does God consider someone to be drunk? Now, that is, that's a very important question because it's God who's going to be our judge. Our judge, when it comes to whether or not we've committed the sin of drunkenness, is not going to be the state of Tennessee, and they are not going to use as the parameter of right and wrong uh, the laws of Tennessee that measure your blood alcohol content as to determine whether or not you are drunk. God is going to be our judge. God created us. He knows our bodies. So it is his determination as what constitutes drunkenness that in the end is the only thing that matters. Now, when we look at the term drunkenness, again, it's listed as a work of the flesh. In Galatians 5, verse 21, the Greek word literally, is, literally means drunkenness, 
habitual intoxication. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10, where he said that drunkards are among those who will not inherit the kingdom of God, that the Greek word for drunkards is talking about people who are drunk, drunken. Uh, basically, people who are drunk. Now, thus far, those within the church who don't have a problem with drinking alcohol and social in moderation, uh, the social drinking as it's called, they will be in complete agreement with this. They will say, exactly, that's right. Uh, drunkenness is a sin. Me having a glass of wine with my meal at Applebee's is not what this is. There's a difference between having a single mar margarita, in other words, just drinking in moderation, social drinking, and being drunk. I would propose to you that that is looking at this topic from the world's standards because, again, the state of Tennessee would agree with that. The state of Tennessee would say, as long as your blood alcohol content does not reach a certain level, then according to the government, you are not drunk. But you see, again, th this is not about the standards of man. It's about the standards of God. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. My ways and my thoughts are as, high, as higher than you as the heavens are as higher than the earth. God created us. He looks at what drink does, alcoholic drink does to our bodies in a way that's very different than we do. In fact, in ways that we might not even be aware of. With this in mind, let's look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, where we read in English translations, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And again, you look at that in English, again, all right, don't get drunk. All right, so I'm not I am not getting drunk by having a, you know, just a cocktail at, at Ruth's Chris Steakhouse with my meal. I'm not getting drunk by that. Well, let's look at what the original language said. Every word of God is tested, Proverbs 30, verse 5. God inspired the writers of the Bible in writing in the original Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek. He knew exactly what words to tell them to put in Scripture. So in the Greek that he inspired Paul to write Ephesians in, the Greek word for get drunk is methusko. And what that word means, according to lexicographer W.E. Vine, it signifies you are making someone drunk. You are growing drunk. It is an inceptive verb. And what inceptive verbs do is mark the entire process of becoming drunk. It means to become intoxicated. It's not just talking about the end result. Robert Young Analytical Concordance of the Bible. He defines Methusco as to begin to be softened with wine. Biblical textual critic Bloomfield, he defines Methusco as to moisten or to be moistened with liquor and in a figurative sense to be saturated with drink. But he wasn't talking in a figurative sense in the first part of that. He was talking in a literal sense. When you moisten something, when you moisten something, you don't, you don't look at the term moisten as soaking someone with a liquid. If, you're, if, you, if your hands just are moistened, that means you just have a little bit, right? To be moistened with liquor. 
the first drinks, the very beginning of it. To grow drunk, biblical scholar Bullinger says, marking the beginning of the Greek word that's translated drunken. It's marking the beginning of it. So what did God inspire Paul to command Christians in Ephesians 5, verse 18? He inspired the apostle to use a word which would not only condemn the inebriation that would result from consuming an entire six-pack of beer, he also inspired the apostle to use a word that would condemn the entire process that you would undergo to reach that state of inebriation, which is basically social drinking. Not only that, but in Ephesians 5, verse 18, he says, do not get drunk, grow drunk, begin to be softened with wine. Why? He says, for that is dissipation. Some of your translations might say it's debauchery, it's excess, it's riot. The word itself in the Greek literally talks about being reckless, being, having, being involved in debauchery, being involved in something that is wild. The Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament that, that's in the Logos program that some of you might have defines this word as describing an abandoned man, one that cannot be saved. Another definition, incorrigibleness, an abandoned, dissolute life, prodigality, prodigal. What does prodigal mean? It means wasteful. The prodigal son was a wasteful son. So, keeping that in mind, what is Ephesians 5 verse 18 basically saying in the original Greek? He is telling Christians, do not even begin to be softened or moistened with wine. Why? For that is wasteful. It is incorrigible. It is what the lost do. It is what those who are abandoned, who are unsaved, do. But this is not all. We are commanded to be sober. One of the more well-known passages in the Bible, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, be sober, be vigilant. Why? Your adversary the devil walks around like a roaring lion. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 6 through 8 is even more on topic. Let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we, Christians, belong to the day, let us be sober. All right, what does sober mean? Again, state of Tennessee would say you're sober if your blood alcohol content is below a certain level. But that is not God's definition. The reason I know this is because the Greek word that he inspired Paul to use is napho. Napho literally means be free from the influence of intoxicants. It literally means to abstain from wine. That's what sober means, to abstain from wine. Napho is a verbal form of another Greek term, nephalion, and an early form of nephalion was nephalios. And what nephalios means is sober, and when it comes to drink, literally it means without wine, wineless. In other words, abstain from wine. So, 1 Thessalonians, 1 Peter, what, is, what did God inspire Paul to command Christians? He inspired Paul to use a word in this command that literally means total abstinence from intoxicating drinks, which would make God's idea of sober similar to Alcoholic Anonymous's idea of sober. If you were to attend an AA meeting and they were to ask you, are you sober? 
How long have you been sober? They are not asking you, does your blood alcohol content meet the state's requirements to operate a vehicle? No, what they are asking you when they say at Alcoholics Anonymous, how long have you been sober? What they are saying is, how long have you been without a drink? How long have you abstained from drinking? And that is God's definition of sober as well. There is a reason God condemned beginning to be softened with wine, Ephesians 5.18. There's a reason he commanded us to abstain from wine, the definition of sober in 1 Thessalonians. God created us. God knows how our bodies react to social consumption of intoxicating beverages better than we do. But do not take my word, let's go to medical science. Dr. Haven Emerson wrote a book, Alcohol, Its Effects on Man. He says even the first sips of an alcoholic beverage, even the first sips can cause changes in mood or behavior. In his book, he cites studies of how the first measurable effects on younger and experienced drinkers were detected after only half a can of beer, which would be equivalent to half of that cocktail that you want to have at Applebee's or half of the glass of wine that you want to have with your meal. With adults who are occasional drinkers, the first measurable effects were detected after only one beer or only one cocktail. Toxicologist wrote an article on this topic for the Encyclopedia Britannica. He said the higher nerve functions of the forebrain, such as reasoning, judgment, and social restraint, are impaired by very low concentrations of alcohol in the blood. Again, very low concentrations. 1971, first special report to the U.S. Congress on alcohol and health says that even the first few sips of an alcoholic beverage can cause changes in mood or behavior. Isn't that what being drunk means? Your behavior changes, your mood changes? The American Automobile Association, I wonder why they would be interested in this topic. They said the effects of alcohol begin with the first drink. The first effects are impairment of judgment and reasoning and weakening of self-control and normal inhibitions. Three weeks ago, on a Monday night, leaving Vacation Bible School at East Main, my wife and two daughters were hit head-on by a drunk driver. And he, all he did was decided that their lane looked like it was his lane. He's in jail now. He was driving on a revoked license because he had had a DUI before. This is serious stuff, folks. Driving safely by avoiding alcohol. An article by the Journal of the American Medical Association. I got this from a work that Don actually did on this topic a few years back. He said, although legal limits for blood alcohol concentration levels have been set in most states, impairment in driving skills can occur with any amount of alcohol in the bloodstream. Notice, any amount. Think about that. Another doctor, with the first few social drinks, the individual's judgments and inhibitions are, affection, are affected. He said, many studies have indicated that ingestion of relatively small quantities of alcohol not only affects the rate at which tasks are done, but also diminishes efficiency and accuracy. 
And again, the Journal of American Medical Association says there is no minimum blood alcohol concentration which can be set at which there will be absolutely no effect. Do not think that you can just have a couple of drinks and it will not in any way make you drunk. The, bio, the biology of your body, which your Lord created in you, says otherwise. So there is a reason why God says drunkenness is a work of the flesh. And then he tells us, I don't want you to even begin to be softened with wine. I don't want you to even be moistened with liquor. I want you to completely abstain from it in the original language. I got this from the work that Don did a few years ago on this topic. Don found a University of Oklahoma Police Department website test. They found a 160-pound man. He drank five ounces of fortified dessert wine immediately, and his blood alcohol uh, content went up to 0.05%. They took another 160-pound man. He drank 12 ounces of reduced alcohol beer, but he didn't do it immediately. He did it gradually over a one-hour period, kind of like what you would do if you were at a restaurant. And his blood alcohol level as a result was 0.02%. 0.02% brings loss of judgment, relaxation, your body begins to warm slightly, your mood alters, your, you, the way you can see visually, you can't see as good, you can't keep rapid track of a moving target, which you would need to do if you were driving. You are, the ability you have to perform two tasks at the same time is diminished from 12 ounces of reduced alcohol beer taken slowly over a one-hour period. So yes, there's a reason that God commanded us in Ephesians 5 verse 18, do not even begin to be softened with wine. There's a reason God commanded us to be sober and used a word that literally means abstain from wine. Now there are objections to this, and there are also sincere questions that people have. There's been, in the past two weeks, there's, there's been a well-known Brotherhood publication that's very popular in the Brotherhood, and they have uh, gotten a lot of people upset, justifiably, because in a podcast they objected to a lot of what I said here from the Bible, and they did so in a very immature and sarcastic way. But they, they're getting a lot of likes, a lot of follows, a lot of amens, of ignorance on this topic. Here are some of the questions people have that we're going to look at tonight. The first one is, didn't Jesus turn water into wine? That's usually the first thing that's said. Here's what you need to understand. Wine in the Bible, we assume it to always be alcoholic because if you go in the grocery store today and you go in the wine aisle and you look at all the bottles of wine, they are extremely alcoholic. And so we assume that must have been the case back in biblical times. And so you read John chapter 2, Jesus turns water into wine, and they look at what the master of the feast said. Well, the guests, uh, they've already, they were already well drunk, and now you've, made the, you've saved the good wine for last. I've heard some brethren say, see, good wine. The good wine, that, that means it's the wine that's best for getting smashed, getting wasted. That's what he meant by good wine. No, it isn't. The word good in the Greek literally means beautiful or excellence. He's talking about the wine's taste. He's talking about the, the way the wine appeared. He is not talking about its supposed intoxicating 
qualities. In reality, the word wine in the Bible, it could refer to an alcoholic beverage. Again, Noah, he got drunk with wine. Genesis 9, verse 21. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1 says, wine is a mocker, strong drink, a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Obviously, that's talking about an alcoholic, intoxicating beverage. But the same Hebrew word in the Old Testament is used in Jeremiah chapter 40, verse 10, to refer to clusters of grapes which they just picked, which they just gathered. Not a beverage and not an alcoholic beverage. In Isaiah chapter 16, verse 10, the same Hebrew word is used to describe grapes that they just stomped all over to make the grape juice that they, that they would immediately extract from those grapes. So the word not only, reply, not only imply, uh, applies to an alcoholic beverage, the same word's also used to describe for literally squeezing juice out of a grape, and obviously that would not be alcoholic. In fact, the same word is used in Numbers to refer to the actual plant, the actual grapevine itself. Going back to John chapter 2, if you look at verses 6 through 8, Jesus filled to the brim six jars that were described as holding 20 to 30 gallons each. And he filled it to each of those jars to the brim with water that he turned into wine. If that wine was not the wine of Isaiah 16, freshly squeaked grape juice, if it was instead an intoxicating beverage like Proverbs chapter 20 verse 1 warns about, and why would Jesus, by the way, make a beverage that he as deity would have inspired Solomon to warn us about? Why would he make that? But let's say for the sake of argument that it was an intoxicating beverage, then that means that at the very least, Jesus made at least 120 gallons of an alcoholic beverage, and he made it for his literal neighbors. And the reason why I say that he's, it's his literal neighbors is because the village of Cana was just right down the road from Nazareth. He made it for people that he probably knew growing up. Why do you think that he and his mother were invited to the wedding? And by making an intoxicating beverage for his neighbors, he, the sinless Son of God, who would have to be sinless to be our propitiation for our salvation, he would have violated Scripture. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 15, Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbor, pressing him to your bottle even to make him drunk. Did Jesus do that? Obviously not. It doesn't make sense for us to imagine that he did. In reality, the wine that Jesus made is the wine that Isaiah describes, fresh grape juice. All right, John, well then why did the master of the feast say that the guests were well drunk? He used a Greek word, methuo, that does mean to drink to intoxication, but that's not the only definition of that word. The word could also mean drink well. It could refer to the quantity of what you're drinking without necessarily requiring that what you're drinking be intoxicating. And that's why some of your translations in John chapter 2, verse 10, don't use well drunk. They use the term drunk freely to describe they had been drinking a lot. Of an intoxicating beverage? No, because that would mean, again, think about it. They, were all, they would have already been drunk when he made the water into wine. And if it's an intoxicating wine, why would he want to make them even more drunk? Doesn't make sense, does it? No, the wine that he made was basically grape juice. End of story. That's what it was. 
The next question that people have, well, in Deuteronomy 14, didn't God tell Israel to buy wine and strong drink? Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses 24 through 26 says, And if the way is too long for you so that you are not able to carry the tithe when the Lord your God blesses you because the place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chooses to set his name there, then you shall turn it into money, bind up the money in your hand, and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses, and spend the money there for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink. Whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice you and your household. Again, the word wine in the original Hebrew, it could refer to an alcoholic beverage, Proverbs 20, verse 1. It could refer to freshly squeezed grape juice, Isaiah chapter 16, verse 10. The same thing applies to the term strong drink. The Hebrew word translated strong drink it refers to the sweet juice, which could be fermented, alcoholic, or unfermented, non-alcoholic, of many fruits other than grapes. And some of those fruits would have a strong taste, which is why the term is called strong drink. The Cyclopedia of Biblical Literature says about the Hebrew word translated strong drink that the definition of that word is much broader than strong drink. Other definitions are listed as well, including sweet syrup, including palm wine in its fresh and unfermented state. God would warn Israel time and time again, I do, you do not drink, don't even look at the alcoholic wine when it is read in the cup. Woe to you who make your neighbors drink to make them drunk. Why would he be giving them permission to buy an alcoholic beverage in Deuteronomy 14. Now, what he was commanding them to do was buy grape juice and sweet fruit drinks, not alcoholic beverages. Well, wasn't it impossible back in ancient times for wine to be unfermented? You know, they didn't have refrigerators back then. Aristotle, Athenius, Pliny, they all spoke of unfermented wine existing in their time. Pliny spoke of a Spanish wine, which he literally in English would say it was inert, not affecting the nerves. He would call it more justly sober wine. He would describe it as being harmless to the strength as of itself. It does not cause intoxication. Ro a Roman agricultural writer named Columella spoke of Greeks calling unfermented wine literally unintoxicating, not intoxicating, harmless. Why is it harmless? Because they would say it is guiltless when it comes to disturbing the nerves, though it was not wanting in flavor. He spoke of a particular Greek term, passum, which they would use to describe when they would spread out the grapes and dry them before they would break the skin of the grapes and thus they would preserve the grapes in that condition because what that would do even after a considerable period of time it would produce an unfermented beverage after you soak the grapes in water. Both Columella and Pliny would write about lining earthen containers with pitch filling them with fresh grape juice right before sealing them up airtight, and then they would sink them in water or bury them in the ground to prevent fermentation because they wanted to keep them out of contact with the air. Columella said that the Romans boiled their wines by boiling the grapes. The boiling evaporated the water, and that would prevent fermentation. Grape juice boils at 212 degrees Fahrenheit. Ethyl alcohol 
evaporates at 172 degrees Fahrenheit. So boiling would be a great way to expel alcohol from the juice. In other words, yeah, they could, they could keep grape juice unfermented without a refrigerator back in ancient times. Well, didn't Paul tell Timothy to drink wine? 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23, No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Now let's, let's assume, for the sake of discussion, that the wine in question was intoxicating in nature. Again, there is wine that's intoxicating, Proverbs 20, verse 1. There is wine that's fresh grape juice, Isaiah 16, verse 10. Let's assume that he's talking about intoxicating wine. Even then, notice that God inspired Paul to tell Timothy, I want you to have a little wine. I want you to have small amounts. Why? To, to relax at the end of a hard day? To fit, to fit in at the party? No. Solely for medicinal purposes. For the sake of your stomach. For your frequent ailments. That is a huge difference from having a cocktail with your dinner. It's a huge difference between what Paul was telling Timothy to do and having a couple of beers at the party. And by the way, Peter would condemn drinking parties as sinful in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 3. Now, grape juice also contains antioxidants, which have a lot of health benefits. They reduce, reduce risk of heart disease, reduces the risk of cancer. It's my opinion that it's more likely that Paul had unfermented wine in mind when he wrote this to Timothy. But also keep in mind, do not drink water only, he told Timothy. Timothy had been drinking only water. It had to take a divinely inspired apostolic directive for him to choose to have a little wine for medicinal purposes. You know what that says about Timothy? He wasn't a social drinker. He was not a social drinker. Here's what 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23 does. People legitimately have questions about medicines that have bits, uh, a small amount of alcoholic content, like cold medicine. Uh, people legitimately have questions about, well, what, what if I have to take this, take a pill for, for pain, an anesthetic for pain? 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23 would provide divine permission for small amounts of medicine with alcoholic content, but only for one reason, for medicinal purposes. And even then, remember what Paul warned in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Even if we are allowed to have small amounts of medicine that has alcoholic content in it for pain, for medicinal purposes, uh, for the stomach and other ailments, God would not want us to get addicted to it. There is a direct command against that. But what 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23 does not do is permit social drinking or moderate drinking of alcoholic beverages just because you want to have it with your meal, you want to relax at the end of a hard day's work. But wait a second, aren't deacons allowed to drink wine? It says that they must not be given too much wine. That's their qualifications. Yet, just go a few verses earlier, elders are told to not be given to anyone whatsoever. In fact, elders are also told to be temperate. Temperate is nephaleos. It literally means abstain from wine. So elders are told twice 
in, their, in the qualifications to abstain from wine, but yet deacons are allowed to have a little. The wives of deacons are told in verse 11 to Nathalios to abstain from wine, to be temperate. So deacons can have a little, but their wives can't have any. Christians as a whole are commanded to be sober, literally to abstain from wine, to not get drunk, to not begin to be softened with wine, Ephesians 5 verse 18. But deacons can have just a little bit? God does not show any partiality, Romans chapter 2, verse 11. Here's the thing about the phrase, not given to much wine. In the original Greek, the word much is polis in the Greek, and it literally means much or a lot. But notice what I, what I put in italics. It's an adverb in the Greek. It's not an adjective. It's an adverb. You know what that means? That means that the word much is not describing the noun wine. The word much is actually describing the verb given, which literally means pay attention to. So literally in the Greek, he is not saying to deacons, uh, you can be given to wine, just not that much. What he is literally saying to deacons in the Greek, deacons don't pay much attention to wine which is basically another way of saying to elders, abstain from wine, do not pay attention to wine, period, and telling their wives to abstain from wine, telling all Christians to abstain from wine as well. Don't the Proverbs permit drink, uh, drinking strong drink? Not really. Proverbs 20, verse 1, wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is astray, led astray by it is not wise. Proverbs 23, verses 29 through 35, Solomon talks about how if you tarry long over wine, if you go to try mixed wine, he says that's the cause for all your woe, all your strife, all your sorrow, and all the complaining you do. And then he tells us in that passage, I don't want you to even look at those intoxicating drinks. And then he warns of the bad effects that they will have on us. But the reason people ask this question about the Proverbs is because they go to Proverbs 31 and they think that King Lemuel's mother was inspired by God to permit social drinking because in verses 6 and 7 she says to the king, give strong drink to the one who is perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their poverty and remember their misery no more. But you see the people who say that this permits social drinking, they ignore what she had just said in the previous two verses. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Why would God and this obviously wise woman warn royalty about the dangers of consuming alcohol only in the very next sentence promote drinking alcohol, and even say that its dangerous results are good for the dying and the poor. Ethyl alcohol, medically, is a poison to the brain. It's a poison to many parts of your body. But concerning the brain, even small amounts of it destroy up to 10,000 irreplaceable brain cells at a time. So why would God tell us that it's okay to poison the dying and the poor? Because earlier in this same book, over and over again, chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, chapter 5, verse 23, chapter 14, verse 21, chapter 17, verse 5, he directed us to do what we can to prevent an early death, and he told us to go out of our way to care for the poor. 
So why would he tell us to basically poison the poor and the dying with an alcoholic beverage? Why would God condemn drunkenness in both the Old and the New Testament? But in this particular passage, he says, that if you're dying or if you're impoverished, you can just drink your worries away. It'll be okay. See, in reality, King Lemuel's mother was not advocating social drinking. What she's doing in verses 4 through 7 is basically, when you put it all together, she is saying, son, when you become king, remember the king shouldn't drink. If you drink, bad things are going to happen. You're going to forget important policies. You're going to treat your subjects unjustly. Look at those people who are dying out there on the streets, who are impoverished. With some of them, their alcoholism got them there, and it keeps them there because it helps them forget their troubles, and it takes away their motivation to fix themselves. Don't be like them. Final question before we end. Well, doesn't Romans 14 list drinking wine as a matter of opinion? Romans 14 is talking about actions that God did not legislate upon in any way, but some still thought they were sinful, like eating meat. Those who thought eating meat were sinful, well, they were told that it was not sinful and they should not judge their brethren who did eat meat. That's what Paul told them. And those who recognized that eating meat was in fact not sinful, Paul directed them, you should still abstain from it lest it offend those who still haven't come to grasp that it's not sinful and do it for the sake of unity. In verse 21, Drinking wine is listed right alongside of eating meat as something which was allowed by God, but it would still be an offense to brethren who thought it sinful. Here's the thing. We have already seen tonight in 1 Thessalonians and 1 Peter and Ephesians that God has in fact commanded that Christians abstain from drinking alcoholic beverage. So why is drinking wine listed in Romans 14? Consider this. Wine, as we've seen, could refer to an intoxicating beverage. It could refer to grape juice. Look at the picture. What I have at the very top of the screen is a picture of the fruit of the vine in one of those very small Lord's Supper uh, containers. Now look at the bottom where someone is pouring alcoholic wine in a wine glass. Do they look similar? At first glance, you wouldn't really be able to tell them apart, would, would you? There's a reason I'm bringing this up. The weaker brethren who thought that eating meat was sinful when it really wasn't, the reason that they thought that was because they had the habit of judging according to appearance instead of righteous judgment. They had the habit of making assumptions instead of testing everything like God told them to do. They would have never have assumed that eating meat was sinful if they had first investigated the matter, if they had gone to an inspired apostle or an inspired prophet and simply asked them. But they didn't do that. They assumed that it was wrong. And that means that they assumed that their brethren who ate meat were sinning as well. So as it, as it was, they had the bad habit of judging by appearance and assuming the worst. They would have been taught what we've looked at tonight. That sober means to abstain from wine. That they should not even begin to be softened with intoxicating wine. And then they, see, they look over there and they see their brother or sister drinking grape juice. They already have the habit of assuming the worst. Where are they assuming? That they're drinking an intoxicating beverage. It looks the same. And so now they have one more charge of sin to make against their brother. Look, they're not only eating meat. Look, they're, they're, they're getting drunk on wine. And that is why Paul addressed it in verse 21. 
Romans 14 does not say that drinking alcoholic wine is a matter of opinion. There's too much data in the rest of scriptures to show that to be the case. So what I've hoped you've learned tonight is that drunkenness is sinful, that our Creator knows that even moderate drinking causes degrees of drunkenness in our minds, and that's why He told us to abstain from drinking. He told us to not even begin to get drunk. And we are, we are called to love Him by obeying Him. We are called to be an excellent example to our fellow man. We are all aware of this. What I want you to understand is that it is simply impossible to do either of those two commands with a beer or a wine glass in your hand. Thank you.